All right, hi everybody. Um, welcome back to um, the more substantive Beth Lita uh, classes, not just our, you know, our regular Parsha chat, but our more thematically oriented mini courses. Uh, and we're about to start um, a kind of a, a series of modules in terms of a theme that we'll be discussing through Pesach, I think, um, namely Judaism and the environment. Why, I mean, why choose this topic? Well, I think a few reasons. One of which is that in the Jewish calendar, this year is Shemitah, which will occupy our attention after, after Tu Bishvat. Shemitah is the year, the climactic year of a seven-year cycle, in which in the Holy Land, the earth is allowed to rest. The halachos between Shemitah and Shabbos are actually quite parallel to each other, and they learn out one from each other. You learn about Shabbos from Shemitah, you learn about Shemitah from Shabbos. It's the Sabbath for the earth. So um, it is appropriate, I think, to bring our attention to the land, to the environment, and to what it needs, and especially thinking about, and this is really going to be the kind of through line of this night's class, um, the earth and our relationship to it. Or what's our place on this earth? What's our place in the order of creation? Um, so, but before Tu Bishvat, we're gonna we're gonna kind of like set the stage for that. That we'll focus explicitly on Shemitah after Tu Bishvat. But tonight we're gonna look at kind of the uh, theological underpinnings of thinking about the environment and our relationship therewith. Next week we're gonna look at our halachic obligations, focusing on the mitzvah of Baltashchis and other uh, the mitzvah against waste and other uh, related commandments. And then we'll prep the following week for Tu Bishvat itself, and then afterwards we'll have a Tu Bishvat Seder on the evening of Tu Bishvat, Sunday night, January something or other. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, but tonight we're going to do the first of two, uh, two introductory classes. Um, I'm very excited about this because I was able to dig into some sources I've been, ex I've been wanting to explore more for a bit. Um, you know, it's it's a very sweet thing actually uh, to you know when you prep for a class and you and you get to feel really excited about what you've discovered and being excited about hearing what other people were uh, you know how they'll process it and reply back to you. So uh, I'm pretty stoked. Uh, let's get let's get started. So before I even start with any sources, let's just start a little bit conversationally, thematically. Um, when you think about creation and theology. Right, create kind of the, the nexus, the knot between us, the world, and God. What comes to mind for you? And and don't and don't you know, don't worry about having to come up with an answer. We don't care about answers here. Just what are you thinking? What have you thought about before? I guess the unity of that we're all created by Islam. And mm -hmm. just thinking of safer Bereshit has how human beings are given the responsibility for looking after the earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, great. Yeah, that's going to be definitely one of the major foci of our attention tonight. So the unity, right, kind of the notion of one God, right, mm -hmm. a unified human race, and also the unity, the unification of all of creation, that they all reflect each other. Exactly, including living and unliving things, like even... Mm -hmm. You know, like the mountains were created, grass was created, mm -hmm. water was created. So we're all part of that creation. Great. And Actually, we're going to see that perspective reflected in a text from uh, the Rambam soon. Great. 
um, you know, as hopefully has become commonplace in the classes here, um, every, all of your chedushim are like so important that they're also resonant with what the great rabbis have said as well. You're no stranger to wisdom. Uh, okay, Anyone, any, any other ideas, contemplations, suggestions? Well, that's a good place to get started. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to look at this uh, dyad, this kind of this pairing of uh, the world and who is it for? That's going to be the kind of question we start out with. Uh, we're going to get a few different answers to that. And I want the complexity of that question and the, maybe the lack of unity in that answer to be hopefully a, a, a fructive, a productive challenge. So let's look at, let's look at the text. Um, there we go. Great. Can everyone see that okay? I hope you know I, uh, I, I kicked my, yeah. I, my habit with Safari. I'm doing my own translations again. Take that. Um, so this is a first class creation theology. So we'll start with the, uh, the text that inspired the title of this miniseries. The Earth is the Lord's, which is actually totally unrelatedly also the title of a beautiful book by Abraham Joshua Heschel about the um, sensibility of Ashkenaz from before World War II. He wrote and delivered a hespade, a eulogy, for, effective for European Jewry um, at the YIVO, at the Center for Yiddish um, Studies in New York City, um, in 1946. And people just like spontaneously, like, after he finished, like, just like, after crying, just like stood up and said Kaddish together. It was apparently an incredible, beautiful book, not at all related to the theme of the environment, but please do check it out if you can. Uh, so this is, um, this is a, a, it's a paraphrasing of the first verse from Psalm 24, which is also the Psalm of the day for Sunday. So we can look at that together. David Mizmor, a Psalm of David. Lashem Haaretz Umloa, Tevel V'yoshve Va. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, all that fills it up, the world and those who dwell upon it. Kihu al yamim yesadah God is the one who founded it, so like the word yesod, right? Yesadah. And, and established it um, on the streams. So here the psalm is drawing on this idea that we also see in the first chapter of Genesis that there is something from the earliest moments of creation, something unformed, something watery, and the earth is formed, uh, established, kind of on these on these depths, on these watery depths. Mi alev har Hashem, Who will ascend God's mountain, and who will stand? Who can stand in God's holy place? Niki chapayim uvar levav, one with clean hands and a pure heart. Asher lo nasalashav nafshi, who has not sworn falsely. Velo nishba lamirma, nor made an empty promise. Okay, so if you were to take this four-verse block, I mean, I've already kind of hinted at it in the way I've, I've broken it up, but what are the two kind of major themes it's dealing with? It starts with something I would say pre-human, even in a sense pre-world, right? It starts with God's relationship in terms of establishing, 
right, creation. So the only kind of axis of relationship in the first two verses is just God and the earth. Right? God is the one who has established the world, and it's a, it's a strict relationship between the two. And then seemingly out of nowhere, suddenly comes then this moral, ethical insistence that there is some kind of human involvement. Now, if you were to like translate it or to put it in your own words, how would you describe what the human requirements are that are, uh, that are established in the latter verses? have to be a holy person okay can you can you unpack holy that's a it's an important word but one that you know is very generic that really is trying to be in god's expectation of what man should be. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Good. So I think like here, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it says the earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it. And we are one of the things that are in it, right? But it seems like in the first two verses, we're just part of the world, right? There's God who is the owner and creator of all of existence. And that's it. And human being is just one of the things, right, that are within it, namely, uh, Yoshveva, the ones who dwell on it. But then in the second two verses, the human being is singled out, in a way, as being someone, as, as, as Ellen just put it, of divine expectation, that there are certain standards that we're expected to meet. And you use the word holiness, which I think is quite apt, but again, like it, it's, a, it's an important word, but one that is like, it's important, but it's kind of empty, right? What does it mean to be holy? I mean, it may be empty or it's beyond, right? It refers to something not just terrestrial, not just of this earth. Um, but, you know, but if we were to say, okay, fine, so you're right. There's certain expectations set by God, but what are those expectations? Like, let's be specific. Someone who doesn't um, swear falsely, like bear uh -huh, false good. witness. Good. Um, someone who doesn't, well, it says empty promise. So someone who fulfills that which they've sworn to do. So Good. someone who doesn't break their oath. I find and, that very interesting. Yeah. And then someone, well, clean hands, a pure heart. So someone who I guess has not murdered, has not killed and pure heart, someone who's, um, treating others with dignity. I mean, that's my translation mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. but, okay, that's interesting, right? So someone who has integrity, so in terms of right. their relationship with themselves, and also in their relationship with others, also has a sense of, um, of being on the right and good. Um, great, that's fantastic. Um, you know, in a way, what we have is like a vertical, horizontal, and radial relationships. Right? Vertical between human and God, horizontal between human and earth, and radial between human and themselves, and then a human and other human beings. All right? Um, but I find it very interesting, right, that it spends an entire verse saying that who is the human being that can stand with God? 
I mean, being of clean hands, right, that's actually famously the Pasuk that, that implies that David HaMelech is not the one who can build the temple, right? Who can ascend the mountain of God? One of clean hands. And David had the task of war. And it was Shlomo, his son, who was his king of peace, right? Shalom, Shalom, um, who was the one who could build the temple. But, you know, here, if you just don't focus historically, but focus more thematically, being of clean hands and pure heart, right? So there's some kind of ethical standard that you have to establish to be in, in God's mountain and in God's holy place. So in the Medrash, in the, in the, in the, in the rabbinic commentaries on this, it says, like, what's the Aretz? That's Eretz Yisrael, it's the Holy Land. What's the Tevel, then? It can't just be repeating itself, of course. The Pasuk would have to say something new here. And the answer is, oh, that's everywhere else. So, the, the, you know, on one hand, it's particular. It's about the Jewish relationship to space, the Jewish relationship to the Holy Land. But on the other hand, it's universal in the sense that it's about the human being's relationship to the entirety of the earth, to, the cre to all of creation. So we have some kind of ethical standard that the human being has to meet, and specifically that the human being needs to fulfill their promises. Right? Besides the fact that, oh, you know, like, don't swear falsely, it's the third of the Ten Commandments, fine. But here we have something a little bit more punchy, right? What does it mean to occupy holy space? It means you need to, you need to be a person of your word. So what I find here is that these psukim, these verses, present a complex of sorts, a combination. What is the combination? The combination is of what it means to have a human being involved with a relationship between God and the world. For a human being to be one of these like three nodes in this relationship, it needs to be the case that the human being is responsible. That's what the Pusik seems to be focusing on, that you keep your promises. You don't swear falsely. You don't overreach. I think in here there is a sense of a kind of incipient conservationism. What it means to keep your promise, to hold yourself to your word, means that you know exactly what it means to what you need to be doing and not taking more than you need not reaching farther than you should. I think there's a certain kind of sense of what it means to be involved with the earth and involved and to be in that way then deserving of the relationship of God, with God. Um, so here, so I think this, this block of psukim, I think presents in a way the challenge. The challenge is, can we find what I would call an intricative, an integrating, relationship between God, the world, and us. And we're going to explore this by looking at more extreme versions of all of those. Namely, a version of it in which it's just God in the world. A version of it in which it's just us in the world. A version of it in which it's just um, us and God. Okay, so we're going to see that the, I think that the healthiest model, the most sustainable model, ha ha ha, is one in which it's able to integrate all three of these elements. So let's, let's keep on pressing forward. So there's a famous teaching in Pirkei Avos. It says, everything that God has created in God's world, God created only for God's glory. As it says, and it quotes a very a famous pasuk from, from Yeshayahu, Kol It says, all who are linked to my name, whom I have created, formed, and made for my glory. 
and it says God will rule forever and ever. Now, the word olam in the Bible and even in the rabbinic idiom means an age, an eon, it means eternity, it refers to time. But I think here it does have a sense of what it will eventually come to mean world, right? A sense of worldliness. Um, but if you were just to kind of sum up here, what's the perspective here? Who, you know, of those those relationships, what's the relationship that Pirkei Avot is, uh, is, is propounding here? Who's, who are the members of this relationship? Mainly God and, and human beings. Okay, where do you see the human being? Oh, wait a minute. No, you're right. It's God and creation. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Created. Oh, that's been created. Sorry, I'm thinking of the first one. Yeah, no, so the first one I want to say is kind of like the the banner that we're flying, and we're going to kind of come back there. But first, we have to see how we can get back there. So first, I want to say, like, first, you know, we can look at this maybe even temporally in a way. Like, all there was was God's and God's name alone, right? That's a famous uh, teaching from Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, chapter 3, right? That before the world, all there was was God, right? And then you know, until the sixth day, all there was was God in the world, right? That God created the world, and, and, and in a way, it, you know, if we were to say, like, what is the role of the world here, there's a famous image, actually, in Breshit Rabbah that says, like, God created the world as a mirror of, of sorts, as a way to contemplate, you know, for, for God to appear. And it's a very interesting point, right? Because and here's something that's, it's, 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 I think, implied, but it's not obvious. So the word kavod is usually used to mean like glory, like fame, right? Majesty, something like that. But in Devarim, and even in Vayikra, if I remember correctly, the word kavod is used not just to mean like something qualitative, but it's actually used to mean what's called a hypostasis. Hypostasis means something abstract that is made personal, like wisdom being not just like an idea, but being like a figure, right? Um, kavod is kind of like a proto-shechina idea, that God's glory is God's presence. So when it says all that God has created, God has created in the world, right here we have world as space, lobra elelichvodo, God created for God's glory. So it can either mean like, look, Look at the incredible world. It's all glorious. It's all an example of God's incredible creative power. Or, or maybe and, it's, it's, it's for God's glory, i.e. meaning as a venue in which God can appear. Right? As the space in which God can take root as such. That God can display God's self. Now, very important to note, right, this, you know, uh, as Stephen Schwarzschild, a, a German Jewish philosopher, insisted, you know, Judaism is a kind of rejection of a kind of, like, flat paganism, which reduces God to the world, right, that God and the world are, are one, or you see that kind of in Spinoza as well. It says, no, there is something different about God. God is beyond the world. But I think the point is more maybe panentheist in the sense that God is in the world, Right, that God is created a world in which this is the the vehicle, the venue in and through which God can appear. 
um, and appear in you know in 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 a beautiful way because you know glory I think doesn't lose its sense of of the majestic. It says everything that is called by my name. Right there's an idea in later Kabbalah too that um, the whole of creation is made of 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 like imprinted with God's name that God's name is inside of everything and to be kind of it's kind of like the matrix right like everything suddenly becomes like got you know streams of green code of God's names everything um, but again that the God's presence represented by God's name can be found in the world that God is called by the world I think that's very interesting right that yes God is other than the world but on the other hand the world is the space in which God is called. What does that mean? And here we also have the three lower worlds of later Kabbalah, Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya, interestingly. But it says that everything that are linked to my name, called by my name, It kind of frames, and this is, I find this especially striking, it frames creation, right, the environment, as the space in which we're able then to become attached to God. Anything is. Everything is. Everything is called by God's name because everything is, and this is a very important word, what's the word in Hebrew for a thing that exists? You know, in Maimonides, actually, we'll get to Maimonides in a second, it's the word nimtza, which means something is found. It sounds similar to German, it says, es gibt sich, right, something is given. But in original, I, w I would make this claim, in original biblical and rabbinic Hebrew, the name for something in the world is bria. Right, the word for a human being is bria, briot, which means creature. We are called by God's name because foundational to every created thing's existence is being created. And being created implies whom? Implies that it's then created. It implies a creator, exactly. So we are all called by God's name in the sense that, and this is actually, this is something that is um, discussed beautifully by Abraham Joshua Heschel in his book, Who is Man? in his kind of machlekes with Heidegger. That's that's beside the point. But in his book, he says, like, that we, you know, against Heidegger says we are flung into existence. And, and Heschel says, no, we are placed. As we'll actually see later, it says that God places Adam in the garden. Where we're not flung into existence impersonally, violently, but rather with care and with intention, we are placed in the world. That our very existence, and I think here's, and here we'll get to the Maimonides point, every created thing's existence, human beings are flattened, are equal in that point. Every created thing, every creature's existence implies the creator. So all of our names are really God names because our identity, what it means to be alive, what it means to be a thing at all, is actually the way that God manifests as such. Right, conceptually. Understanding ourselves as creature is how then God's name becomes manifest. Um, so here we're going to continue with kind of what I'm going to call a decentered 
God-world relationship, decentered from human beings. Now, the kind of classical sense of Judaism is that it is deeply anthropocentric, right? That the human being is at the center of the whole mix. And that is true. But I'm starting first by kind of trying to decenter the human from the, from the middle, right? From the center, to move human beings away from the center. And Maimonides is the most robust example of that. Uh, this is in English, so does anyone want to give it a shot? Want to be our reader? I can do that if you want. Great, please. Okay. It is thought that the purpose of all that exists is solely for the sake of human existence so that it can worship God and that all that has been made and all that has been made for it alone. All the more is, the, is this the case for all the species of animals and plants. The final end being the existence of humanity. Is the creator not able to bring it into existence without all these preliminaries? Or was it only possible after they were carried out? Okay, so just pause, pause. What's the Havamina that Rambam is saying? Everything was created only for human beings. Right, that's what he's saying. You might think that. Right, right. You, and what's the challenge then? What's the Pircha? Uh, it may not I'm doing be a very, like, from reading of the, of the Guide to the Reflex. Ah, that's the Havamina. Well, what's the Pircha before we get to the Moskuna? No, so what's the, what's the Pircha? Um, that, um, I mean, possibly that all the creation is equal, and so human beings are not really top of the ladder. That's the, that's the Teiruts. That's the resolution. Let's get, oh, okay. the, how do you challenge the Havamina first? So the challenge would be that not everything was created for humans, but creation was created for Hashem. Again, that's more of a principle, and yes, you're right, but we're missing kind of a little bit of a middle step. I heard somebody else. Yeah, sure. that humans humans couldn't have been created without all these other things first. Bingo, exactly, that's right. So if God wanted to create everything for human beings, then why did God need everything else? Right? If the point of everything is human beings, then why is there a world? Why not just human beings? Do you get, the, you get how that works logically? But but logically, I mean, the, 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 the initial premise mm -hmm. is that everything was created for the human being so the, the human being needs to eat so there's animals and right. plants so then why water, didn't god just create a human being that didn't need to eat oh also possible but that would be an angel fine fine but the point here is that the final end being the existence of humanity is creator not able to bring into existence with all that without all these preliminaries if the i mean he's being very aristotelian if the of the if the tachlis Right, the telos of all of creation is the human being. Is God limited such that God would have to then like do all of this intermediary stuff so that the human being can exist? Oh, that's true. Right? So in other so then what's the what then thus what's the what's the necessary rational implication? There is a, a reason for everything else to be created. Everything has a reason to exist besides the human being. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, okay. So I just want to make sure we got the way, because this is hard stuff and the way it's, and I, you know, this is, this is Shlomo Pines' translation and it is, it is incredible, but it is not easy. So I just want to make sure we get, get the way the steps work. Okay, good. Keep it going. Oh, you want so me for to this reason? reason? For this reason, the correct view is as follows. It should not be believed that all things being, be, that all 
the beings exist for the sake of human existence. On the contrary, all the other things too have been intended for their own sakes and not for the sake of something else. In respect to every being, God intended that being itself. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah, so this is the most robust example of a non-anthropocentric account of creation. And, it's, and, my, and it makes, and my, you know, Maimonides is like saying it as a philosopher. And, and in a way, the point is this. The fact that the world exists means it exists for its own sake. Because if everything was really for the sake of something, a component in the world, then it should just be the component that existed, not the world itself. The fact that we have this incredible biodiversity, right, of species, plants, animals, bugs, critters, whatever, is because everything exists for its own sake. Now, this is a pretty radical you know, theological principle because it means like, yeah, and that means like even like a bear as it chases you, right? It's just doing what it has to, you know, it's doing what God wants it to do. And, you know, you know, you can t obviously you can extrapolate from that to a more other examples. But, um, you know, what we have here is the notion that if the world and everything in it exists for its own sake, it is, you know, it's not a non-anthropocentric universe. Rather, it is an everything-centric universe. Everything exists for its own sake, which means everything exists for itself and everything exists is also for it. But that's true of everything. So then the relationship to the world, then, it seems, if we go back to the model that we had from Psalms, what does it mean, then, to be clean of hands and pure of heart, to not swear falsely and not make empty promises? It seems then to be in the role of some kind of handmaiden, I would say, to be a cooperative existent in the universe, to be a supporter in what it means for everything to be pursuing its own end. What? Right? Well, Otherwise, I would argue against that. I'm sorry? I would almost argue against that. Like the Maimonides mm -hmm. version or explanation if everything exists for itself, it's like yeah. self-contained. It's like there it actually isn't any interde interdependence or integration suddenly. Um, mm -hmm. stand alone. Yeah, I mean, yes, I think that's right from a like strictly theoretical perspective. But if you think about it in terms of the world, right, like. That would mean then we wouldn't eat or breathe, All right? Like I just I just brewed tea. Tea is made of plants. Plants then, and I now have a cooperative relationship. Now you could say, ah, the plants exist so that the human being can make tea, and Rambam is saying, no, that's not true. Rather, the tea exists for its own sake. The human being exists for its own sake. But that doesn't then mean that they don't have a relationship. It's just that the relationship is not one that is in which one of them is a dominant component of it. I exist so that the tea can be drunk in a way. Like, I exist for the tea just as the tea exists for me. The tea doesn't overpopulate. <laughs> right, no, that's exactly, I, I think we're getting at a sense, right, in which, like, well, I, think, I think an extension of Rambam's point 
is one of ecology. Right? That if everything exists for its own sake, that means everything has a right to exist. That's more of like a Kantian, you know, like kind of an ought, what should be the case. But like, if everything, has, if everything exists for its own sake, everything should exist, because that's what God wants. And that means then that we do have some kind of role in what it means to help everything exist. Right? A strictly anthropocentric version of this is like, great, the world exists so that I can have yummy treats. Yummy, yum, 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 treats to treats. And I'm going to like create ways of farming so that I have the most treats. But Rambam's perspective, perspective is the world exists so that everything can flourish because God created all of these creatures, and I think bringing back this point, for God's glory. And thus, my involvement with the universe is for the sake of God and furthering God's plan. And God's plan is for everything to exist. So the way I farm then is in a way that then, yeah, maintains a sense of balance, maintains a sense of the, the biome, right? Maintains a sense of, of, of the biodiversity and the like. I think that is a, I don't, I, I don't know if it's necessary, but I think it is a way of drawing out implication from Rambam's point. That what it means then to reimagine what relationships between creatures look like it's one of cooperation because everything has its own right to exist. Okay. So here I'm going to bring out um, some beautiful verses that we sing every Friday night. And it's so interesting, you know, it, it, it's so interesting to me that the um, predominant themes of Kabbalat Shabbat, all right, which you'd think would just be about like, You'd think it would be psalms about Shabbat. You'd think it'd be like prayers about, you know, like about divine, um, you know, the heavens and the angels and stuff like that. But most of the psalms that we sing for Kabbalah Shabbat are about creation. And I find that always very striking. Um, and creation as this, as this venue in which God's theophany, right, occurs. God's, which means like the appearance of God. Um... You know, maybe it's not accidental that Kabbalah Shabbat, you know, was designed by the by the Kabbalists in Sfat, and in Sfat, right, they were actually praying in the fields, and then would actually go inside um, after they do Kabbalah Shabbat. So maybe being outside, you know, is a in, in the world, as it were, is a is a is a central feature of what Kabbalah Shabbat meant originally. Okay, so it says. Um, let the heavens rejoice and the earth exult. Let the ocean and all within it thunder. Um, the fields and all that is in them will celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will sing and shout before the coming of God. Kiva, kiva lishpota aretz, when God arrives to govern the earth. God will govern the world with justice and the peoples with trust. Okay, so we're still in the God and the world kind of like relationship, axis of the relationship here. We're not, we haven't brought the human being back yet. We will soon. Don't worry. But I, I, you know, this is such like a thrilling series of psukim. Like if you were to, if you were to kind of put these in your own words, you're to paraphrase what's going on. You know, what's what what's the what's the major theme here? Like, what's the poetry trying to? What picture is it trying to paint in your mind? 
all of creation will exalt God. Mm-hmm. We'll give thanks to God for creating it. I'm a tree. I exalt God for creating me as a tree. I'm a, a rock. I exalt God for, tra- for creating me as a rock. Mm-hmm. Okay, so giving some kind of like acknowledgement of that fundamental relationship. Acknowledgement with joy and with thanks. Good, good. Thank you for stressing that. Because that is, I think, a really, this is a deeply affective series of psukim. They're very emotional. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it says, like, you know, the, uh, you know, Inuit, I think this is apparently apparently not true, but, like, Inuit languages have, like, a hundred words for snow. Maybe that's not true. But Hebrew has a zillion words for joy. And it's a, it's a beautiful feature of Hebrew in the, in the Tanakh. Yismichu Hashemayim, v'tagel ha'aretz, right? Like, the heavens will, will rejoice. The world, the earth will exult. Right? This is celebration. Right? Celebrate good times. Come on! Right? This is the world just, like, throwing down with God. You know, what it implies, you know, it's not, I, wouldn't, I don't want to use the word harmony because it's ecstatic. But it is... There is harmony here, right? There is a, there's a harmonious relationship between the world and God. How do we know that? Because when God comes back, right? When God comes, like, to the world, you know, in the time to come, Oz, whenever Oz is, the world will, like, be just delighted, will be sent. It will just be, like, overcome with joy, right? That's what the world will be like when God appears, Right, so what, I mean, this, it, it clearly refuses what I think some people want to read, you know, kind of a more, let's say, transcendental version of Judaism, of some kind of opposition between the natural world and the divine, the natural world and the holy. That, you know, it's like denying the, you know, the, the joys of the earth or what have you. And what's clear here is that the earth will celebrate when God appears. You know, and that kind of ecstatic emphasis really, like, strikes the reader. And it is ecstatic because we'll see, you know, the, you know, it, the, 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 the sea and everything in it will vibrate. Right? The fields will dance and, you know, and everything in, you know, like the, the antelopes jumping in the fields, like every, the whole world, this incredible, like, huge party, right? Everything in the earth is going to be grooving and dancing and, you know, doing the hora when God appears. It's an enormous party. And, but what, what is the kind of the nature, though, of God's appearance? When God comes to govern the earth, Usually it's translated to judge the earth, but I don't think that's right. I think what's being implied here is a more intimate reconnection between God and the world, in which God will be directly, presently, imminently involved with, you know, with what it means not just to be doing hashkacha pratis, you know, like God's governing of the universe from afar, but rather being in the, in the thick of it. And here again, we have the re-entrance of the human being. But in what way? As one of the species. Like, oh yeah, the human being is part of this, but as one of the things, that one of the species that is going to be celebrating. Right? 
all of the different aspects of the natural world will celebrate when God comes to govern the world. God will govern the world with righteousness and the people with faith, with trust, with honesty. It is an emplacement of the human being within the world. That's really what I'm trying to get at here, is that we have a cooperative model, a systemic model, I want to say, of what it means for a human being to be in the world. The human being is a focus in the world, but not the, not the only focus. And the way in which the human being is part of this glorious system, the system God created so that God's glory can be known, is to be a cooperative partner within it. To not swear falsely and to not make empty promises. To know what your, know, what is it, the rock, right? Know your role, right? To know what our place is in the universe and to be able to fulfill it with, I think, and model ourselves after with righteousness, with justice, and with trust. Um, okay. So here we have the, most of the lines of Psalm 8. Um, and here we have kind of, I think, the reintroduction of, of the person as a more, let's say, a more substantive focus. It says, Hashem Adonainu ma'adir shimcha b'chol God our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Asher t'nahodcha al hashemayim. You who have covered the heavens with your splendor. So this is, again, beautiful evocative, poetic language to describe the aesthetic quality, right? God's creation of incredible of the world as, as, as a beautiful thing, and its beauty testifies to God's glory. Right? I think, you know, one thing that I, is sad to me that I think is missing in a lot of contemporary Jewish theological writing, or I would just say kind of contemporary Jewish spiritual practice, is space and time to allow the recognition of God's glory, right? Of God creating such incredible spectacle, right? Such incredible things to be, to be seen. We'll come back to this point actually at the end of the class, but um, to bear witness to. Ki right? When I see, when I see, ah, interesting. Right, so it brings the. This is the first time we see the first person. When I see, right, the perspective, of, the POV of the writer is when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers. Beautiful, beautiful image. The moon and the stars which you have affixed. Dot dot dot. Ma enosh kitis karenu uventam kitif kedenu. What is the human being that you would be mindful of them? the son of Adam, the child of Adam, that you would, that you would think of them. What happens in that dot, dot, dot? What's the disjunction that's being implied? It's very subtle. It really struck me when I was reviewing the psalm. I think the Havamina, you know, bring back again that kind of like rabbinic language, is if we start with this kind of ecstatic poetic description of creation, how, you know, how majestic are, is your name in all of the earth, right? You have made the stars and the moon and all these twinkling beautiful lights. You could go so far as to say all these things are so beautiful 
and and the human being is this like wretched little creature what do we matter right and that seems to be kind of the that's the that's what's suggested what is the human being that you would be mindful of us we're not shiny like the moon right we're not a majestic mountain that you you know that takes your breath away but then the psalm pushes on and says and here we get to the point we are we are just a little bit less than the divine you've crowned the human being with beauty and glory you've made them master over the work of your hands you've laid it all at their feet so then what is i want to say like the yeah this disjunction that's at the heart of what it means to be the human being in creation this psalm recognizes something that I think like Maimonides was pushing away from, but I think the psalm is pushing pushing back. I know it's centuries later, but whatever. That the psalm is pushing back. The psalm is saying that there is a special place for the human being in creation. And it's but I think it agrees that it has to do with what it means to be involved with the world. That we I mean go back, right? when God comes to govern the earth. Ah, God has made us God's viceroy, God's superintendent, right? God's um, emissary in this world to be governing it of sorts. Tom Shalehu, uh, right here, right? Mashallah means governance, to rule over something. But I mean, this incredible language, Tachsereomi Atmelokim. God has made us just like a scouch less than, 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 than the divine. God has crowned us with glory. Again, glory, right? The space for God's appearance. And beauty. We've seen in the Psalms spectacle. What it means to look. Ki er eshmecha. When I look at your heavens. What it means to look at the, at the, at the, at the creation and to see God's glory. The psalm is then challenging us to be able to look at ourselves as a creature, as something made for God's glory as well. I think it is, it's a testament, I think, to the beauty of the human body, the way that the human body works and all of its com complexity and intricacy, the way that we are a creature as well. If everything in the world is made for God's glory, so were we. And the special role we have, right, with our frontal cortex lobes and our consciousness and our intellect and our emotionalism and our artistic abilities, our creativity, our things that make us like God, a little bit less than God, our Tselem Elohim. Those things are also a venue for God's glory. It's not to glorify ourselves, but rather, and here is it, incredible, it, it, watch what happens. You've made us a little bit less than God. You've crowned us with glory and beauty to be governing the work of your hands. Colon. Sheep, you have laid it all at our feet. Sheep and oxen. All of them, and the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever traverses the watery paths. God, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. It doesn't end with a pan to us. It puts us in the middle. So many scholars have noted the chiastic nature of a lot of 
biblical poetry, that it, it exists in kind of parallel ways. It starts by kind of running down a thing, it hits a fulcrum point, and then it goes in a mirror way to the end. It starts by saying how majestic is everything, and then it says all the things that God has created. Then it singles out the human being as something special. Then it says all the things that God has created, and then it says how glorious and majestic is everything that you've made. We're at the fulcrum of this because we are, we are at the center of the workings of the world, but not in a way that brings focus to us, but rather in a way that brings furtherance and glory to the world as a system, to the universe and the creation as a whole. We exist in God's place as God's emissaries to be recognizing the glory that exists in the world. When I look at your heavens, when everything is at my feet, it's not that I step on it or trod upon it, tread upon it. Rather, it's an exhaustive list of everything that exists because of how excited we are by the diversity and the glory of God's creation. Everything's at our feet so that we can look at it, and I want to say, I think this is what the psalm is getting at, so we can cherish it. The role of the human being is cherisher-in-chief. That's our role is to be cherishing the entirety of creation. That's what I want in our theological thinking, in our Jewish thinking about our place in existence and, and God, is that our role, our vocation, is to love it, to love it and to take care of it. So we've, we started with the verses from Psalms which insisted on uh, human responsibility within the creative system. And we've ended with what kind of, to gesture towards what that create, what that responsibility looks like. And it has to do with cherishing all of existence so that everything can exist in its fullness. And I think that's that's captured by the dyad, the, the twin phrase of what Lauren hinted at before, before we got into the text themselves. So we have a famous verse in the creation story that God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there the Adam whom God had formed and from the ground God caused to grow every tree that was pleased to sign pleased to ugh, that's I, pleased to Lamar uh, list, pleasing to sight and good for food right so we see also again sight spectacle to witness something is essential in terms of the human relationship to existence. God took the Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And it's that twin phrase, that dyad, that I want to focus on, that dialectic of sorts. And God commanded the Adam to say, saying, from all the, the trees of the garden, eat, you shall eat. Okay. So, before we get into the commentaries, right, what is the program that seems to, that is hinted at in this primordial scene, right, of the first introduction, I mean, this is the scene in which the human being is introduced to nature, right? Think of it like the way we come into consciousness. First, all we have a sense of is ourselves, then all we have a sense of is our is the mother 
right? All we have sense is us and God, right? Our creative force. And then from there, we start to see something beyond that primordial scene. We see ourselves in a world. Okay, so what is this scene getting at? What is our, what is, what is the, what is the introduction of the human being into the world? It, it says Shomer, so to, well, Lavod Shomer, so to, to work it, but Shomer, to look after it, to be the, the, the guardian of it, to make sure, how else can you explain to be a Shomer? Like a Shomer is like a guard, like somebody who, who protects, to be a protector of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, a guardianship. Very nice. Okay. Uh, who, 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 anyone else have like associations with this, with these verbs, or maybe want to offer a different translation of them? What comes to mind, right? What God says to Lo'ovdal Shomra? What do you think is being gotten at? All right, it's a big question. It's a big question. Um, so let's look at a, what a bunch of rabbis want to suggest. I'm going to start, we're not going to do it historically. There's no, you know, Ein Muktam Mukhar There's no earlier or later in Torah. We're going to be zipping around all of human history. So it says, the Gaon of Vilna, 18th century genius uh, uh, rabbi, Eliyahu um, Ben Shlomo, uh, he said, to work and to keep it. To work it means working the land and watering it. Okay, so what's, I mean, when, when he says work it, what kind of work is he thinking of? Agriculture. Right, okay, good. So, I mean, you know, like, now that we get our food from Loblaws or whatever, right, maybe it's a little bit less obvious to us, but, you know, he is thinking of an immediate relationship with creation, okay? And I think that kind of sense of dependency or interdependence is key to understanding this. And I think it's something that's really lost in this um, incredibly, um, you know, removed existence we are in, you know, this hermetically sealed existence we have in modernity, right? Food is something that comes in, in packages, right? It's not something that comes from the earth. So to work, it means to work, to water it, to farm. In Shmirah, Shaloy Aleba Peritz Chayos, that, um, basically that animals won't break, wild animals won't break in and do what? And spoil it, right? You know, like the, 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 fa the rabbit or whatever that breaks into your garden and eats all your tomatoes. Um, and so the division of mitzvot is in twos, positive and negative. The positive is within the bounds of the work and the negative is in the bounds of the keeping. Okay. So we, we get the literal meaning of what he means to work the land, to farm it, and to keep the land, to make sure that, basically, that it's not ruined by, you know, chaotic uh, animals. But if we can extrapolate a little bit farther from that, what else does he mean, you think? And also, what do you make of his actually now suddenly bringing in the language of mitzvah? What do you make of, what do you make of that? I found what's so interesting is that it's not just an idea of these are things that you can do, but he's actually framing it as obligations. 
that there's the positives, that there's the asse and lotase. There's the you must do and you can't and you shan't do. Right? And what we must do is work the land. And by that, what it seems like what he means is have a relationship to it which is oriented around our sustenance. So back to kind of Susie's pushback before. To, ex to live, right, for the human race to, pers you know, to pursue its, its fulfillment, we need to eat. And to eat means to have a relationship with the earth in which we use it, right? It's, you know, the notion of kind of zero resource expenditure is a fantasy. The and it is a fantasy that I think is born of being removed from the earth. The point is to have an existence with the world in which we relate to it, in which our need of it, our use of it for our sustenance, is coupled with a low taase, what you're not allowed to do. And what you're not allowed to do, or you have to, what you must make sure doesn't happen, is that animals ruin the food. Now, animals ruin the food, I think, what he means like, be smart, don't let your, let your garden get ruined. Fine. But I think there's something a little bit bigger than that. It's that you are allowed to use the earth for your sustenance, for your, your flourishing, but... You can't let that overrun a sense of balance and sustainability. You can't let it be spoiled. He uses the example of wild animals, but I think in a way he means creatures. We can't let anyone's creature, anyone's species' needs result in the despoilation of the earth. And I think that, you know, the implication there is clear, you know, in terms of what it means to just juice the earth for all it's worth, to just use and use and use resources until it's, until it's despoiled. I think the Gaon of Vilna, again, I don't, is this what he has to be saying? No, but I think you can have a reading of this Perush to say that we are not just allowed to, but we're commanded to use the earth so that we can eat, so we can live and be happy. But it has to always be in balance with what it means for have a sense of conservation, a sense of sustainability, such that externalities, right, getting letting your desires, letting your laziness, whatever, take over, such that then it ends up being spoiled. So we have a dialectic. We have a balance between these two things. Okay. The Bourchour, uh, a medieval French Provençal, um, commentator says, and God also placed there the Adam to work it and to keep it, namely the land where the garden was located, to bring the garden to its completion and perfection. Here what we have is a cooperative model of the human being as a kind of, again, a, a, the feature in the system, but not just like a feature like anything else, but we are the catalyst for what it means for the earth to actually uh, achieve its final form, to achieve its fulfilled for its completed form, its perfected form. I think here what we have is something that's kind of, you know, missing often from the, you know, there's a very anthropocentric version of we're allowed to dominate the earth because, you know, like we're allowed to just trample over and get whatever we need. But the Bechorshur is going back to this model of responsibility that we saw in the Psalms, that we have a vocation in the world. We have a role to play. And the role here is as partner. Partner in what way? A partner to ensure that the earth actually achieves its most perfect form. 
this would be developing, I think, technologies to make sure that the Earth is able to be sustained, that the Earth is able to function at its highest level. I think there we're really missing, I think, a lot of that kind of sense of what it means to be not just a, a, a selfish participant, but rather also a cooperative participant. To be, to be an emissary, not just of God, but an emissary of the Earth. To be serving the Earth in that way. Okay. Um, this one's a little bit complicated, and I don't want to get totally into the weeds, but Ha'amek Davar says, basically, if you pay attention closely to the Pusik, it says first that God planted a garden and placed Adam there. And then it says later that God told Adam to work it and to keep it. Now, he's saying there needs to be, in a sense, a recognition that this is two stages. The first stage is that actually the world was fine on its own. And that our place in the world was as something that was just existing in it. Just, uh, just enjoying it. And that the introduction of work was actually something that God introduced as a secondary step. That God wanted to further the earth as such. And that's where the role, the human beings need to work it and to keep it takes place. That there's, in a way, I think I think this is, a, it's it's in dialogue with Bechor Shor in the sense that he agrees that, that the role of the human being is to um, be a caretaker of the earth and to, and to help it further itself, to help it develop. But on the other hand, there's also something before that, before work, before resource expenditure, of just ex coexistence, that's what Eden was like. That's what, like, first pure Eden, that pure-cut Eden was like. And that everything after that has, in a way, kind of been like the pre-stage to being exiled, right? Because we know that the curse of the human being is to, you know, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat, through toil and through sweat, right? So work is a necessary aspect of what it means to live in existence and to live in exile in a way. But the what the model of redemption is a model of coexistence, actually, in which we're not draining the earth anymore. We're only just existing in it. it says that's the level of Moses. That's the level level of Eliyahu and Navi chilling in the expansive heavenly fields. Right? It's like being on heaven on earth. Heaven on Earth is going back to a stage before work, before resource expenditure, before, um, before what it means to toil. So I want to bring us to the Sforno, which is a fascinating text. And I, wanna, I want us to, to read it. Now, uh, this is a challenge, so get ready to, to answer something. So he says, To work it means to exercise the living soul. As it says, God breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. To keep it, so the human being will not become dehydrated, which is essential. A human has natural warmth, and fruit is distinguished in providing consistently a restitution of what was sweated out so that the human does not become desiccated. That's a very fancy way of saying, to keep it, fruit exists to rehydrate human beings. Okay, so wait a second. What's the subject and what's the object of who is to work what? Who's the object in this in these pirushim? To work it, the, so so the 
that which is doing the action subject yeah. is the human being. The it is um, creation. So that the the so to exercise the living soul would be if we're in the image of God, then as as Hashem created us by breathing in our nostrils, so we will help create sustain that which was put on earth, and to keep it means that okay that which was put on earth it's like a um it's a cooperative situation so that which was put on earth now can actually be there for the sustenance of humans so okay. it works both ways there is great that so there is a dialogical reading of this which you got i think which is basically working you know, agriculture, farming, you know, this is like why there are so many Jewish farming programs now, because it's a very spiritual activity. What it means to be in direct, intimate connection with the earth, to see what it means to develop that kind of dialogical relationship is a beautiful thing, and it has a spiritual quality to it. So working it, working the land, also exercises, works out the human soul. And also, the different aspects of creation sustain the human body in a way that's necessary. So there's an interdependence, which you described. However, you're wrong. Beautiful, and that here's it. No, I think that is. A, I think that's a feasible reading. But I want to say very carefully. Loovda literally means to work it, but the it is gendered which gender. Remember, gender is grammar. That's what gender originally was. Loovda to work it. It is gendered in what? Uh, which gender? Loovdo versus loovda. Loovda is female. Feminine. Good. Feminine gender. Feminine. Right. Female is female is for is for bodies. Um, feminine gotcha. gender. Okay. So love da. What's the what is the feminine it then? What is the object? Lavod at Nishmat Chaim. What's the object? The human soul. It's not to work the earth. It's to work the human soul. What's the subject? Who's doing the working? This is a fascinating parish. It's the earth. The earth is working us, and the earth is keeping us. How is the... The keeping one is kind of the more obvious one. Now, it might be the case, by the way, that, like, working the land is curative, is therapeutic for the human soul. That might be part of it. But regardless, the earth is exercising the human soul. The, wor the earth is working the soul. Maybe through our working, through our involvement with it, but the earth is working the soul. Ovda, ulishomra, so that the earth can keep it, keep us alive. How? Because it provides the necessary sustenance we need to replenish ourselves. It says here specifically, the fruit is moist, and you know, and we get like dehydrated. That's a specific example. But the point is that the world exists to sustain us too. The difference here, though, is that instead of it being a model that centers us. It's a model that centers the world of how magnanimous, how generous, how wise the world is to keep us, to guard us, to take care of us. It's an incredible re, uh, reshifting, re reconfiguration of who's the focus of that verse. It's the earth and the earth's ability to take care of us. And I think that the implication there then in terms of our standing in this kind of three-way relationship between us, the world, and God, 
is again a way to recognize our, our own dependence, our place within the system as a whole. It's not just that, you know, oh, we are the heroic workers and keepers of the world. The world is the heroic worker and keeper of us. If we think of it, like I know they, that there was sort of a physical example, like we need the hydration and everything, but yeah. if think of it as the earth is nourishing our soul as well as our body. Um, mm -hmm. And then if you go back to the, the one before where at first we got to like just enjoy and be part of Eden and then we had to start to contribute, it feels more like as opposed to be keepers of the garden, we had to learn to appreciate and like like recognize the importance like of, of all of it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's exactly right, Susie. I think that is, this is the working out of, I think what we were starting right. to see in the Psalms, that the role- Because God doesn't need that, us to make his creations flourish. Well, the, I, I mean, that is what the Bechor Shore says. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, again, you can say, okay, fine, then why, you know, God could just do it God's self, da, da, da. But the point here is that, like, yeah, the human being's possession of consciousness, which is unique, is that we are unique in all creatures to be able to recognize, recognize, right? Think again about, think differently about, think fresh about, cherish, cherish the earth to realize and recognize its special qualities, and then to devote ourselves to what it means. And I think that sense of, and I, you know, and here the Midrash Kohel Rabbah is a famous text, this text that is beloved by all Jewish uh, ecologists, because it, it, it is not just a sense of like, let's say a moral imperative to cherish and, and to love the, and to bear witness to God's glory, but it's also based in a sense of political economy, of scarcity. Because God says, you know, God took Adam on a tour, right, through the whole garden. God said to Adam, see my works, how good and praiseworthy they are. All that I've created, I made for you. Okay, fine. But be mindful then that you do not spoil and destroy my world, right? Back to the Gra, back to the Gaon of Vilna who said, make sure that you don't let it be spoiled. For if you spoil it and destroy it, there is no one after you to repair it. You have got, you got one world, says God, in this text. And you have a unique, you know, back to Lauren's point in terms of like kind of the, the, the unifying theme of oneness, right? You have a unique singular role in terms of what it means to be the creature with the consciousness to be able to realize your place in it. You're the only creature that, that has a sense of what a world is. Right? Everything else exists in the world. But we recognize world. What it means to be in it. What it means to be in it. And because of that, then, we're able to spoil it, as we are. You know, the other reason I want to teach this class is because, you know, like, as evidence regarding you know, climate change and impending climate catastrophe, you know, increases, I think we have a moral and religious imperative to, um, I think, to really take a stand in terms of trying to re-advocate for what Judaism is supposed to be taught, for Torah is supposed to be teaching us, what Torah, what our relationship with God, how it is supposed to present itself and manifest itself in our in our lives. It cannot be something that just sits on the sidelines and just, you know, uses 
you know, plastic table covers on Shabbos and plastic chalant liners, you know? It needs to be something that is not just about furthering a culture. And it can't just be about ourselves. It needs to be what it means to be ourselves in the world. To regain a sense of worldliness. To be in worldment. To be inside of it and part of God's creature, creation. To be a creature once more. Recreaturefication. That is that is my that is the mission. <laughs> to re-recognize what it means to be a creature. Okay. So here we have it's like a very early, you know, it's an early text, a very early rabbinic sense of what the relationship is between ethics and scarcity. There is one world, and time goes forward, and there is no one other than you, or who will come after you, that will be able to fix it if you if you uh, spoil it. It is it is down to us. You know, very and and as and as Susie quite rightly and insightfully pointed out that there is a devotional practice, you know, to recognize and to appreciate what it is that we gain, that we are given, what it is that we gain benefit from, what it is that we are gifted in God's generosity to give us such a world, such a world that takes care of us in such incredible and beautiful ways. And to feel, I think, a sense of you know, because I mean, gratitude is so like a, such a, a spare and an abstract term, but like to feel cared, to feel that care, and the, and the devotion and de and recognition of dependence that comes from that. Um, I think is, is is the is a, is a takeaway from this. Okay, so I um and we're you know as always too much Torah to learn in such a little time, but this is a you know uh, ironically the first thing I worked out in the source sheet because I was like oh man I can really go deep in this so we're gonna try to do as much as we can. Okay, there's a famous teaching in Pirkei Avot. I think here here I want to kind of like so we we've crafted a creation theology right a theology about what it means to be a creature to recognize God's presence and God's relationship to the world as something created and provided, to recognize our place within it as someone who is tasked with what it means to further that creation to its to its end, to help to bring it to completion, to help to bring it to uh, its furtherance. Okay, beautiful. But how do we bring Judaism back into that? Because then fine, why aren't we just pagans, right? Why aren't we just like tree huggers? What, what, what's Torah's place in this? And, and here we're gonna, I'm going to propose a revision of a very famous text that's often used to, in a way, kind of like distance ourselves from the natural theology. So Rebbe Eliezer Ishbartota says, Give God what is God's, because you and yours is God's. And David similarly said, Because from you, from God, is all, and from your hand you have given it to us. Rebbe Shimon says, gives an example, one who is strolling through on a path, reviewing their learning, right? Like learning Torah. And they interrupt their learning and says, How lovely is this tree? Or how lovely is this plowed field? The verse considers that person as if they are liable for their life, i.e. that they are guilty for capital punishment. Yowza! Okay, if you are walking through and you're like learning Steiging Torah, and you go, man, man, what a pretty tree. <laughs> say the rabbis, you should die. Now, that's obviously rhetoric. They don't literally mean it. You should be, it's it's rhetorical. But, because they stopped studying for a second? 
Okay, so yeah, why? Why? Like, what's the intent? Why? What's going on? Why are they so intense about this? Why are they being so extra? Because to me, it's the opposite. Like, hey, stop to admire God's creation. Like, it seems. Ah, wait, wait, ah, but does, do they say God's creation? What do they say? Uh, how beautiful is this tree? How nice is uh, the plowed field? That's what implies man-made, but. Uh -huh. Oh, very nice. So the Baal Shem Tov, who actually I didn't include in this because it's a little too complicated, said, when he says, ah, look at this tree, actually he means the human being because it says, ah, ki adam eats us a because the man is a tree in the field, which a verse we will see when we talk about Tubishvat. Um, so when it says tree, it really means human being. When it says plowed field, it really means human ingenuity. So when it says these things, it's not saying creation, says Baal Shem Tov. It's actually saying, look at the glory of the human being. And because of that, then... Okay, but let's just, before we get into, like, kind of rereading, let's just understand the pshat, the way it's generally understood. It seems to be saying that if Torah and world are counterposed to each other, Torah is better, world is worse, if you are learning Torah and then you say, man, look at that world, you're, you did something wrong. You ruined something. Okay. But what often gets lost in discussions of this and what I actually want to say that I think that is a reductive reading, I don't think that's actually apt, is that the first part of this is to say, give God what is God's, because you and yours are God's. Right? Because from God is everything, and from God's hand, God has given it to us. So there, it begins with a challenge of totality, to recognize what we've been talking about already, namely the systemic nature of creation, that God has provided us a huge and manifold thing, which is so much bigger than anything we could ever contemplate. But our role is to recognize, again, recognize and cherish the gift of existence. It's not just here as a default, and it's not just here as a given. It is given. It's not a given, like we should assume it, but it was given. It was donated. It was lovingly gifted to us. And we receive it as a gift with love. So that kind of genero that generosity should breed gratitude. And then we have Rabbi Shimon who says, here's somebody steiging Torah, and they say, how lovely is this tree? <sighs> so let's explore why there's this kind of strong reaction against that. What's being ruined when that happens? So we'll start with Rabbi Yonav Gerondi says, when a person is learning, they shouldn't utter profane speech, for one must stand before the Torah with reverence and awe. So what was the guy's sin then? He Profane brought mm -hmm. good. He brought Profane secular. Speech. He brought the secular in a, in a time of holiness. Profane, Profane meaning Profane. like whole, right? Yeah. Okay. So the again the shot way of reading it is to talk about nature or whatever in the middle of Torah learning is that's profane. That's not holy. But you can also read it and say. To speak profanely is wrong when learning. So when he said that, he was speaking of it in a way that was not conscious of God's presence. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the words he said, per se, but rather what he meant. When he, and here's the thing, even if you were to say, look at this beautiful tree, he, in a way, what he's doing is posing Torah against world. He's saying, he's learning, he's learning, he's learning, and he says, oh, look at this tree as something other than Torah. Look at this field as something other than Torah. 
But there could have maybe been a way for him to say, oh, look at this beautiful example of God's creation, or something like Susie was suggesting, that might not then have bred the same reaction. Okay, um, Moshe Lutz, Chaim Lutzato, the, who wrote Mesilas Sharim, 18th century mystic and moralist Italian, he wrote also a book called Derech Chaim, he also wrote a book called Derech Hashem, but Derech Chaim is his commentary in Perkei Avos, and he says, the Torah, the, the Mishnah was very particular about its order, because in the Mishnah before this, which we didn't see, it says that the Holy One is with a person in their study. So when you're learning, you're actually able to commune with God's presence, he says. And then it says in the following Mishnah, give God what is God's, for you and, and yours is God's. So he's saying it speaks to the magnitude of the bond between a person of God and God in the act of Torah study. So when, when we're talking about Torah study, what we're talking about is an opportunity to connect with God, with God's presence. God's presence is literally there when you're learning Torah. God's presence is here with us right now when we're learning Torah. Or rather, maybe, recognizing God's presence is what it means to be in Torah. How does that then change your consciousness? To be seeing what you're doing as a venue through which you can connect with God. Oh, wait! Isn't that exactly what we were talking about before when it came to creation? The venue for God's glory. So what we're missing here, it says, so when it says afterwards, one who's walking in the path, blah, 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 and says, how nice is this tree? It's as if that when they break off from their Torah study, they're also breaking off from the one who is with them while they learn. I think here, again, there's a simple way of reading it and say, he's doing a sin because he's leaving behind Torah and doing something less valuable. But I think, again, the point here is, he is moving from a consciousness of, or rather, it kind of shows you, as I think Chaim Heichel is going to say, that, um, that he wasn't really in it. He says, even if you go back to learning, you're still chayev. You still ruined something. Why? Because it shows that you weren't really in it in the first place. If you were in Torah learning to connect with God, then whatever you did in the middle of it wouldn't have been a problem because the real issue, I think, is the word mafsik. The real issue is the word interruption. That's the problem. Not what he said but the fact that he perceived it as interrupting Torah. That's the chap. The issue isn't the content of what he said. The issue is the orientation. If he had said that as a continuance of Torah, then you can see whatever tree you want. The point is to be dvekus, is to connect with God in God's presence. Ex distraction is a nice way of putting it, Susie. That's why I translate it as interruption. That it's a seizure. It's an eruption into what he's doing. He sees it as something different. That's the issue. It's that he sees, he sees himself as ceasing Torah to say something about something else. That's the key. The question is whether you see it as something else. And here we're going to come to one of the most beautiful examples of this that nobody... You know, I learned this actually from my teacher, James Mikes and uh, James... Uh, uh, Michelson, um, James, uh, Maisels, sorry, well, Michelson Maisel. Um, and this is incredible teaching. It's only in the Lakutim, it's in like the, the miscellaneous extra of the Hasidic text of Orenai, which is one of my favorites, of Menachem Nachem Chernobyl, the grandson of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, Baal Shem Tov. 
it's, it's an incredible teaching because here it, it you know everyone all the environmentalists who want to reread this mission that they're all missing this one this is the one to get and here and i think it's going to leave us in a really beautiful place so it says lift your eyes up to the heavens and see who created these it says because a person must be one of wandering eyes right you must be a person of wandering eyes as it says of rav that he was a person of wandering eyes, but he would only look four cubits around him. He wouldn't look beyond four cubits, so that he would not blemish his sight. Now, what do you think the issue here is? And I think we're going to kind of we're going to get a little bit sensitive for a minute. But I think the the the, the parallel he draws is really important because there is a breach, a covenant that is struck between you and your eyes. What el What's the most famous breach that? is in Judaism. Like a Brit Milah, right? What's the most famous Brit in Judaism? Circumcision. Circumcision, good. And the circumcision, right, is generally taken to mean like it is an identity marker to be part of the Jewish people. Fine. Except that, especially in rabbinic and Hasidic Judaism, it also comes to take to mean something about sexual continence, right? About responsibility with your sexuality. It says, just like with, like, Brit Milah, you can ruin something. You can do damage with it, right, through sexuality. Here it's talking about specifically about, um, about Vatala, about wasteful expenditure of seed. Um, but the point is it's drawing a parallel between this and in sight. So there's a breach with your eyes. And it means that there's a responsibility, a covenant that you've struck, what it means to have eyes. Now, what's interesting is that the parallel it's using with Brit Milah means it is erotic in the sense that you are gazing at beauty and glory and pleasure. You're getting pleasure from your eyes. But that privilege comes with a responsibility. And I think like the parallel with Breit is really important here because I think the anxiety that Rav has is you have a whole world of beautiful things to look at. But I mean, think I think it's become especially uh, apparent now in 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 human history is how you know the notion of like the male gaze or the notion of objectification of looking at somebody in a way that turns them into a thing to get pleasure from. That's the that's the ruining of the eyes. That's the that's the blemish of the eyes. I think it's both that your your sight is damaged by the way that you use it because you've spoiled you've done something bad with something good, but also a sense that you can the opportunity and the potential to do damage with your sight to hurt somebody by the way that you look at them, the way that you ogle them, the way that you get you know that you leer at them, right? You know. Um, I think this is a very important and essential point. I'm sorry, it's hot for taking a little bit longer, but thanks so much for staying. Um, I think it's a really essential point that, in, in, in the in the difference between interpersonal ethics and, and world ethics, environmental ethics is here too. That to have the opportunity to have pleasure from the world is an incredible gift, but one that comes with responsibility. And one that comes to remind us that what we are looking at to gain pleasure from is not just there for our enjoyment, but as Rambam says, exists for its own sake. 
So if you look at a beautiful human being, it needs to be done in the way that does not reduce them to something for your pleasure. That you can celebrate and rejoice in how beautiful everything is, but not in a way that tr that reduces something, someone, to being just a venue for your enjoyment. That's the crux of what it means to recognize your place within a world, within human relationships, within creation, as equal to everything, as a celebration of everything, a celebrant of everything, not as the focus and the point of everything. So the, the sexual parallel here, the erotic parallel, is I think a very apt one, but one that we you know, need to be sensitive about and serious about and, ca and, and cautious about. The point is that you have a responsibility and a privilege when it comes to your eyes, and it shouldn't be one that is just used wantonly and wastefully, without a sense of what it means to be grateful to and responsible to that which you're looking at. Um, so Rav, you know, so we have here the high standard of what it means to be given eyes, which is the, the, the covenant to be able to gain pleasure through looking at God's creation, the beautiful aspects of what God has created. And it starts here by saying like a note of caution, but then he moves to say the imperative. And the imperative is this. He says everything was created for a human need, but it's not just for human need for our own sake, but rather so that we can work, so that we can work and serve God. And everything that God created in God's world, and as we saw above, everything that God created is for God's glory. So when it says everything is for human need, it really means for human need so that we can manifest God's glory. Not for our own sake, not for our own pleasure, not for our own need, like strict need, brute need. Not to just pig out on the world, but rather to be a sir in service to the world to become the most full example of God's glorification that we can make it. Everything in existence, it, it is the, the glory of God is found in every single thing in existence. And when a person gazes, peers at into anything, and perceives the glory of the Creator, then they are united with that glory. Aho! To connect with God's presence, as 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 Lutzato said. So it's not just Torah learning, like steiging Torah, in which you're able to connect with God's presence, but to be able to commune with with creation. To get in touch with God's glory within everything in creation. To be bowled over by everything's beauty, because of God's presence within it and to become devoted to what it means to be in service to God's, to God's furtherance and to the world's, to world's um, care. And when you're able to recognize and perceive God's glory and commune with God's presence, then you bring healing and perfection, completion, to that thing. That's what the Bechor Shor maybe was referring to, to bring completion to the world. Because everything has been created so that um, 
through it will come the glory of God. And that and, and the glory of God will be completed and perfected. Even God will be healed as such. This is the healing of the break between God and the world. God created the world, and it's the human role to bring God and the world back together so that the hills will rejoice, so that the, so that the heavens will, will sing. Our role is to unite God and the world as, it's, as such through recognizing with our consciousness God's glory within it. That's what our eyes are able to do. And similarly, the rabbi said, if you're, look, if you're walking around a field and you see, uh, sorry, that you go around in the month of Nisan and you're supposed to go around and look at trees and you're supposed to bless, and everything in this world, briot, not oat, everything lovely that was created, and all the things that, that the rabbis have appointed to make blessings. But the opposite is what, is what we just saw in the Pirkei and Pirkei Avot. That you're walking the field and you're learning and you interrupt yourself, i.e. you take yourself out of it, you remove yourself from being connected. And you say, ah, how lovely is this tree, blah, blah, blah. Then you're mitchayev, then you're liable. Ki lo me I couldn't just let you get there to the end, Susie, but we had to get there honestly. Because everything was created, nothing in this world was created to remove you from divine service. What an incredible line. Nothing in this world was created so that it would remove you from divine service. Rather, Adaraba, the opposite is true. Lekarev oto la'avodato, to bring you closer to God and serving God. La'avodato, though, la'ovdal l'shomra, right? To a, a life of service, of divine service, of service to the earth. V'zehu su'umaro menechem, and this is lift up your eyes and see, sh'rashai ata l'hagbiya, that you are permitted to raise up your eyes above. Ba'ofen she'kol devar sh'tir'u, azru'umi vara'ela, so that everything you see you will recognize the one who created it. Or Solomar, that is to say, that through looking into the world, looking at the world, looking at creation, even deadly spiders, even the things that you might be surprised by, that's the challenge of this theology. It's not just to say, oh, look how pretty that thing is, but rather to learn how everything is beautiful. I think that's especially challenging, you know, because it is a decentering perspective. It's one that says, oh, it's not just something that I naturally like or enjoy, but rather that we are in service to this thing. Um, we are in service to the world to be able to recognize God's space and God's presence within it. So quite rightly, the problem was not recognizing the beauty of the tree. The problem, according to Morenaim, is that he recognized the beauty of the tree as something in its own right and not as, like Torah, a venue through which you can commune with, recognize, and connect with God and bring perfection to, and completion, fulfillment, healing to the relationship between God, human, and earth. That's the task. That's the avoda, and that's the shamira. The avoda 
sorry, the Shemira is to guard our eyes, as, as it were, to keep ourselves from just reducing the world to what we enjoy, to reducing pleasure to the point, to guard our eyes from ravaging the earth by just turning it into a venue for our consumption. The avoda, the service, is what it means to be working, devoting ourselves in care and cherishing to the world so that we can take care of it, so that it can be the most perfect and holy venue for human beings to be able to commune with God and recognize God's, uh, cr uh, God's creative power and God's, and God's glory. So it is um, an incredible, I think, challenge and promise that we have set before us that I find it's immensely inspiring, but one also that's a deeply um, ambitious reorientation of what it means to think of your place in the world, not just as kind of the blank space in which everything gets funneled into, but rather to be able to zoom up, to look up high, I think in a way even to, to transcend is what it means to be here and to see yourself within an entire system and all of it working together to be able to testify to the glory of God. Thank you so much for joining. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week in which we will get a little bit more, you know, this was very uh, trippy, very high, very, very uh, holy. But um, the next week we'll look at kind of the more ethical, political, legal nature of it. We look at halakhic questions around how actually, I think, is halakha trying to guide more responsible decision-making and how can we rehabilitate, I think, a halakhic tradition that unfortunately has really been kind of marginalized and shunted to the side, focusing on the mitzvah of Baltashkis. I hope to see you there. Uh, please do tell friends. Um, and um, and then we'll be learning about Tubishvat the week after that, and we will have our opportunity to have a Tubishvat Seder together on Zoom. I will provide further details um, as the date nears. Shkoch uh, to everyone. Shavuot Tov. Thank Looking you. Looking forward to learning with you soon.